I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now to our conversation. It remains impossible to talk about the 2014 midterms without turning immediately to the big question, the only question, which party will take Senate control and who are we to fight that power? So while we wait six weeks for actual results, we turn instead to predictive analysis, deep dives into dozens of race-by-race polls that seem to be released hourly. What do they show? How many seats are truly still in play? Where should we focus attention? And within that focus, what should we be looking for? Most simply, can't anyone just tell me who's going to win? Sam Wang is an associate professor of neuroscience and molecular biology at Princeton University. He is also founder of the Princeton Election Consortium, where he publishes one of the most watched polling models around. Sam's model has come under some scrutiny this election season, as it's been one of the few models consistently predicting that Democrats will retain the Senate. What does Wang know that the rest of us don't? Sam, thanks for joining me. I think even before we get to your model or your current projections, we have to deal with what I think is the pertinent question. What's the connection between neuroscience, molecular biology, and American politics? I mean, I understand the connection to politics (laughs) if your background were in psychology or curing mental illness of some kind, but neuroscience, molecular biology, how, how does it all add up? Right. Well, thanks for having me on to at least uh, explain that. Um, I've been a neuroscientist for several decades now and also extremely interested in politics, as so many people in the United States are. Um, The basic idea here is that as a consumer of news media, I often get a little tired of breathless stories about a single survey. And so I was looking for some way to cut through all that. And back in 2004, I realized that all the tools that we use in neuroscience might be usable. So neuroscience is filled with signals that are kind of noisy that might be telling us something, but we have to find a way to carefully separate out uh, what we call the signal, the the meaningful information from the background noise that's just getting in the way. And so this is a a problem that's common in engineering and the physical sciences, and uh, and neuroscience is no exception. So all I did was try to come up with some simple tools to take all these polling data points uh, for presidential races, or in this case, this year's case, Senate races, and turn it into a single sharp snapshot of where the race is at any given moment. And so, were you, uh, so were it seemed like a good match. Were you always interested in politics? I mean, growing up, was it was it a, a hobby, a, a, an interest, or did something kind of happen as you you know as you became an adult? And you know, two thousand four at Princeton, I assume you were at Princeton at that time, and and you know, in these very challenging fields, you just found yourself with loads and loads of extra free time, and you thought, hey, why, why don't I apply what I know to uh, political data polling? Yeah, free time is actually kind of in short supply. Right yeah, here, that, that's but, you know, what I would think. Yeah, everybody needs hobbies. 
and uh, and it was the year before my tenure, and it was uh, I would say almost a way of blowing off steam a little bit from other kinds of data work that I was doing because uh, like everybody, I was watching the Kerry versus Bush race, and I think that you know data aggregation for of polls is now of course extremely common and it's it's a major part of political coverage. But back in 2004, there weren't that many people doing it. If you recall, 2004 was a super close presidential race. I mean, both Kerry versus Bush and before that, Gore versus Bush, those were really close races. And I think that people who are doing this kind of data type anal- database analytics, uh, for the most part, were not doing it back then. And so I think it's almost like being back at that time now, looking at how closely run the Senate race is this year. And so let's turn to the Senate race and and how you kind of you know look at the polls and 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 what you do. So so talk to me about meta analysis. I, I think that you know as I'm reading through, that's kind of it seems to be that that's the um, center of of what occurs. You focus on polling data and then estimate how the polls will move. And you, you'll correct me if I'm butchering this, getting it wrong. Oh, no, as no, that's, opposed that's to perfectly right. Okay, great. As opposed to perhaps other models that fact that. That, that factor in what you call um, fundamentals. Kind of talk to me about your approach and and what are the pros and cons to you know the the, the different ways of of approaching you know trying to tell people like me what the probability is of certain winners come uh, the first Tuesday in November. Sure. Let's see. So let's talk about polls only, which I think in some ways is a little bit more intuitive for most people. Uh, which is the. The idea is to express it simply is that if you want to know how people in a particular state or race are going to vote in an upcoming election, a relatively simple way to find out during the campaign is to ask them. And so pollsters obviously do this. There are dozens of pollsters out there. And sometimes individual pollsters make a mistake in their methods. Uh, but on average, pollsters are pretty good. So it's just like a market of uh, people in a marketplace, like in, in a, say on the, on the stock trading floor. Um, pollsters themselves uh, are a, uh, a crowd and their wisdom is pretty good and they end up being centered around the correct outcome. And so on election eve, polls do a really good job. So a, a pretty simple approach uh, on election eve is to take all the available polls and to take the middle one. So that's called the median, right? So you just arrange yep. all the polls in order of, yep. of who's ahead. And you take the one that's right in the middle. And the one that's in the middle is uh, usually very close to the final outcome. So that's a polls-only approach. Now, what I do at election.princeton.edu, at the Princeton Election Consortium, is uh, I do that. And a lot of people do that. And I think that that's a pretty valuable source um, for people who would like to know where the race is at any given moment. Um, we also, in the last few years, starting in 2012, have started um, to use that idea that polls capture opinion uh, to also try to make a prediction. Now the idea is that that snapshot, which can change from day to day as new, new polls dribble out, uh, that snapshot can change over time. And what we do is we watch that snapshot move up and down over time to give us a feel for where the campaign might go. So if Obama had a you know bad performance against Romney in a debate, then opinion goes towards Romney. Or if Romney commits a gaffe, uh, then opinion might go towards him. And so watching that go back and forth starting in June gives a pretty good idea, in, uh, in my experience so far, um, of predicting what might happen on Election Day. So that's how one can make a prediction just using polls. Yep. 
Now, now let's see. Now you asked about fundamentals, right? Yeah, because that's kind of the the alternative yeah. R- yeah. route. And yeah, go ahead. Right. So there are sites that uh, do that. There are uh, somewhat complicated computational models that do that. I think the most prominent ones are the New York Times, uh, Upshot, uh, the Washington Post, and of course, 538. Um, the general concept there is that if you're far away from the election, or if you think that polls have inaccuracies, then a good idea is to start bringing in more assumptions about where voters ought to be. So for instance, if voters on average don't like Obama very much, then you might expect them to vote against the Democrats. And so to add in assumptions like that, or the incumbency of a candidate and so on, it's possible to come up with some advanced advanced expectation uh, far before the election of where a race ought to be. And so those models are using those uh, assumptions to try to figure out where they think the, the race's natural endpoint is. And they use that to, um, to, to put a finger on the scale, not necessarily with a political bias, but to, uh, to do what statisticians call provide a prior, the prior expectation that, you know, in this state, really, I know the polls are saying X, but all these other factors suggest that it should naturally be headed towards Y. And, uh, and that's what those guys are trying to do. Um, as it turns out, the, any model like that is going to have a few points of uncertainty, and uh, and Senate modeling is actually um, in its infancy, and uh, there's hardly any uh, work that's been done uh, doing Senate modeling, and so um, so in my view, uh, there is some risk associated with using fundamentals. Yeah, well, it's certainly fascinating to see kind of how the various approaches are going. And you're right, the whole, the whole thing is kind of, you know, entering, uh, you know, I don't know if it's entering a, a heyday, but it's certainly entering, um, you know, just the mainstream of political conversation and political, um, you know, outlook, uh, whether that's, you know, your approach or, or some of the, the other polls that, or, or approaches or predictive models that, that use, right. um, fundamentals. There was a, I should have noted, you write as well, uh, um, very well and very persuasively, uh, for the New Yorker. And in your, I think it's your most recent piece. You had a line that that I wanted to, you know, that made me stand up, and I just wanted to, to understand better. You wrote that um, September is highly predictive of the final outcome, and I guess you were you were getting at that, you know, as you look at the polls the, the way that you do, um, September, you know, it, it starts to become a time where you can maybe start to see. Uh, a little bit more predictability in terms of what the final outcome will be in November um, as opposed to earlier. But that's what I was trying to understand. It was your point that September itself is particularly predictive or that um, as as one gets closer to election day, nothing's as predictive as the actual uh, election itself and the actual voting (laughs) itself, but but that that as you get closer, the, the, the polls become ever more predictive. Yeah, all I was really getting at there is uh, two separate points. Um, one is that, uh, let's see, so I think the main point I was trying to get out there is that you might not necessarily expect it, but people who are front runners in September, even if they're in front only by a few points, those front runners usually win in November. And, uh, and sometimes it's said, gosh, you know, this far out from the election, there's no way that polls are going to tell us anything. But that turns out, on average, not to be true. And so my point in that piece was uh, that we can already tell, in many cases, who's very likely to win. In other cases, people who are pretty likely to win. 
And even if one factors in those statistical uncertainties, it's possible to start really honing in on which races deserve the most watching as to uh, what's going to uh, as to what the remaining uncertainty is. And as it turns out, with uh, this year of all years, with the Senate uh, very closely contested, there's four, maybe five races that uh, that really deserve scrutiny uh, in the home stretch of the campaign. Yeah, and I certainly want to talk to you about uh, about them. You you name them in the piece, and and uh, they are the, the the four in particular, four maybe five ish. Um, yes. Each of them are, are is fascinating in its own right. At the heart, though, um, you, you know, you're you're your model, let's just say, has been um, pretty consistently stating or predicting that um, Democrats will retain Senate control, which uh, on some level um, has put you in in a bit of a minority. Um, while most models out there you know, are moving a little bit more towards the middle, um, yours has been out there consistently predicting um, Democrats will win. It, it, why is that? Is there something about adding fundamentals that to a model that causes – I know you, you, know, said, you said just a moment ago that yeah. it might create bias, but not, not intentionally – but but might increase. You know. Yeah, let me let me unpack this just a little tiny bit. Yeah, okay, please. so the first thing I should say is that I agree with you that our calculation suggests some slight advantage for the Democrats, but I would not characterize it as a big advantage. So if you look at the outcomes of the calculations we're doing, it's between typically 49 and 51 seats for the Democrats plus independents. And so even though the probability, 70% as of today, sounds kind of high. As far as I can tell, probabilities between 80, 20 and 80% are really in this sort of no man's land where they actually are not that certain. I mean, if you think about it, you, wouldn't, you would not accept a game of Russian roulette where the odds of survival were between 20 and 80%. That's just not what you would do. I don't even think and I'd the, go at 81%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I take your point. So, so I think, I think it's... I think a fair way to put it is that if we take a, a snapshot that's naive, just of where polls are on any given day, I would say that uh, that it would be better to be in the Democrats' position than in the Republicans' position as far as Senate control is concerned, but not overwhelmingly so. Um, that would be my characterization of where the polls are at. Now, uh, generally speaking, uh, websites, modelers who only use polls have given results that uh, that are stronger than sites that use polls plus fundamentals. So without drilling into any of the details of the fundamentals, the way I would characterize that is that the fundamentals are reasonably, you know, well thought out expectations at the beginning of the campaign season of where the race ought to be. And I would say that in tightly run races like Colorado, Iowa, Louisiana, uh, uh, Arkansas, Arkansas the ones, yeah. and, uh, I would say that in those states, Democratic candidates are slightly outperforming. Um, and Republican candidates are slightly underperforming. And then, of course, there's the Kansas case, which is, uh, you know, a crazy case that, that fundamentals-based models were not prepared for at all. Yeah, I don't think anyone was really prepared for a Democrat yeah. pulling out and, uh, you know, leaving it to an independent. Yeah, well, and, yeah. Yeah, let, me just, let me just riff on that just a second. So yeah, for instance, if you go to the New York Times' upshot model, uh, over at the upshot, they've done a very good job of showing both their full model, which includes the fundamentals, and then a snapshot showing polls only. And their polls only snapshot, or prediction rather, uh, suggests that Democrats are favored. Their combined model, uh, I think at the moment, very slightly favors Republicans. But if you drill into it a little bit, their fundamentals suggest that Republican senators 
Pat Roberts in Kansas fundamentally ought to win by 29 points. And I don't think that any observer of the Kansas race believes that Roberts is going to win that race by 29 points. If he wins that race, it's going to be a squeaker. And so that's an example of how fundamentals, if you are not careful, can go inadvertently dragging your model into a place where maybe it shouldn't be. And when they do, I, and I know you suggest, I think it was in the uh, in your piece in The New Yorker, you suggest going to the upshot and, and checking out the polls only. It was in something that you wrote. It might have been in one of your responses uh, oh, yeah. on, I, on your site. I just, I just love I love their interactive. I mean, the two yeah. websites that I know of that are uh, completely open source in their data and their computer code and so on are my website, uh, the Princeton Election Consortium, and the New York Times' upshot. And so they're really open about it, and they've done a great job of providing interactives to help people play with the data themselves. And if I, I really think that, yeah, go, you know, go ahead. Sorry. You yeah, really just, think? I think in this, I think in this age of data, data journalism isn't necessarily any better than other kinds of journalism. If the methods are kept obscure to people, I think it's super important in any kind of data journalism to let people see what's going on in a way where they can put their hands around it. And, uh, and I have to say, I really admire what they've done there to let people, you know, put, their mouse on the bar and drag Kansas in both directions and drag Louisiana around and just see what would happen as it gets moved around. I, I think it's, you know, honestly, I, I enjoy playing with their, uh, their web-based tool. And if I had taken your direction and gone to the upshot and done the polls only, would that come out similarly to you? I mean, you said it does show Democrats, but would it, how would that then be different than what you do if you do polls only there because you do polls only as well. I know um, I'm getting something wrong here, but I, I just don't know what I'm getting there's wrong. Some, there's a lot of little math in between as to how to do the best job of extracting value out of polls. And Got so, it. for instance, okay. one, so one kind of thing is exactly how you turn polls into a probability. Another thing is whether you think it's appropriate to go uh, correcting for any possible error by individual pollster. Uh, I take a real uh, minimalist approach where I think that it's worthwhile for there to be a snapshot of just polls without me getting in there and unskewing them or, or doing any of that clever stuff. I just want to just have this really simple reduction of polls into this uh, one number that people can look at. And, you know, there is some chance it's not going to be right, but it is a pure view of where the polls are at. Is there any race, any state more fascinating to you right now than Kansas? I mean, are you kind of, you know, to the extent that, that you have, you know, three minutes a day to be thinking about something other than uh, neuroscience and molecular biology, <laughs> are, are you just waking up and, and going to check out w what's going on in Kansas? Oh, uh, when, when I'm not analyzing brain circuit data, uh, you know, you might be surprised, but actually I'm not paying that much attention to Kansas at the moment. Um, Greg Orman, the independent, yeah. is ahead by median of about five points. Uh, and things look like, he, you know, he's currently the front runner, and I think that it's unambiguous. Honestly, the, the place where I'm spending a fair amount of time thinking about right now are uh, Colorado, Iowa, and Alaska. Uh, these are places where the race is really close, and Alaska currently has me tearing my hair out because uh, it's got very few polls, and, uh, and Alaska seems to be a hard place to survey. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that in a number of, of places. So why, what makes Alaska so hard to survey, in, in your opinion? And, um, you know, based off of the polls that you are able to see, do, do you then have to discount those polls on, in some sense? Or, or how, do, you, do you have to apply any additional special sauce to interpreting them mm. or trying to extrapolate on them? How, how do you think about Alaska? Well, at this point, if I try to do any kind of correction of polls, I can tell you that my readers would 
start screaming for my blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so given the idea that I said before, which is that I'm committed to providing a polls-only view, I, I have to follow that rule for all states. That having been said, Alaska is a funny case. So Alaska is a state uh, where if you look at all the polls or if you look at the phone-only polls, they show the, show the Democrat, Mark Begich, uh, ahead by a little bit. If you look at polls that, uh, that use other methods like internet sampling, they show um, the Republican Sullivan ahead by a little bit. And let me just forget about polling nerdery and methodology and point out that Alaska has a very interesting quality that it's got a very mobile population. In any given year, 10% of Alaskans either have just arrived in the state or are about to move out of the state. And so the only state that's like that that I know of with such a mobile population is Nevada. And Nevada is the site of a spectacular polling error six years ago when all the pollsters and all the prognosticators thought that Harry Reid was done for and that he was going to lose to Sharon Angle. And then he pulled out a five-point victory. So, you know, there's a case where a hard-to-poll state led to an error. And Alaska is, uh, at least based on its population mobility, is pretty hard to poll. And what about Colorado? What uh, what are you looking at there? I saw you wrote recently that, that one of the factors that can really start to affect polling, it, it you know, obviously will be advertising in Colorado as a place with uh, some urban centers that uh, where you expect that that may end up being a, a factor. Was I kind of taking everything that you wrote correctly there? Yeah, I was just pointing out that of all the major, of all the states with, uh, with uh, very close Senate races, Colorado obviously has the Denver metropolitan area. And so with the race so tight there, it's actually tightened in the last few weeks. Uh, with the race so tight there, something like advertising could make a difference. Uh, obviously, things like get out the vote. I mean, that is a place where I am certain that activists at all levels are training their firepower on Colorado, including advertising. Yeah, very interesting there. And, and uh, um, Arkansas, uh, you know, when, when Tom Cotton came onto the scene, um, you know, when I just kind of saw his bio and his background, um, certainly seemed very like a very compelling narrative to me and his, you know, his military history and his service and the way that he has um, given himself. And, and of course, uh, you know, a state where Obama is not terribly popular and, and uh, you know, with health care and some of Mark Pryor's um, issues there. What, what are you seeing now as, as you look at the polls there? Any trends in the polls that uh, are kind of making you think that that may end up going one way or the other? Mm, that's a pretty... Um that race is pretty tight. I would yeah, say that, uh, that, that cotton is very slightly favored. Um, but I would also say that that is a state where there's an unusual gap between likely voters and registered voters. And so if you look at the details of these polls, it looks like Senator Pryor is actually ahead in registered voter models. Now I'll say that Arkansas is not a state that's used to getting national attention in political races because it's usually not in question which way it's going to fall in most, th- in most cases. And so the full machinery of party um, of voter turnout machinery has not been applied to Arkansas. And so I think there's a huge question mark there as to, you know, what's going to happen there? Are there going to be squadrons of party operatives descending on Little Rock and Texarkana and all these other places to uh, to go drag people to the, to the polls? Well, maybe you know? to, to, to the extent that they're not uh, that they're not in Colorado, I guess. 
Yeah, and that's right. Yeah, yeah. Do yeah, the same I, thing I, there. How do you handle? You, you just talked about something. And I, I meant to ask you this when you were talking about uh, Alaska a moment ago. So, in all the among the the real benefits, I think of all the you know of the work that you do and and uh, Monkey Cage and and Upshot and Five Thirty and everyone who's who's really you know educating is I think there's a, a greater sensitivity to this difference. At least there is with me. The difference between polls that um, are with registered voters versus polls with likely voters, polls that are able to reach people, you know, on cell phones and various, you know, you know, maybe right. slightly more current versus landlines only, et cetera. How do you address that when you work out, you know, put a poll into your model in any of these states? And, and is that, I guess you were just saying a second ago, maybe that's one of the challenges around Alaska is, you know, not only is it hard to get folks, but, but when you get them, uh, you know, the mode of, of reaching them may be a bit challenging. So how, how do you fact, does that get factored in at all? Or, or does that run counter to your, uh, you know, we don't, we, we don't doctor the polls in, in any way mantra? Well, let's see. So the, the way I would put it is that um, if in the last two Senate cycles, in 2012 and 2010, using polls only with no special corrections has done really pretty impressively well. In 2012, taking a poll median on Election Eve uh, got every single race correct. And, um, and so it's hard to do better than perfect. And in 2010... Uh, I think 2010 was the year that, let's see, so there was a Colorado race that was within one percentage point, and, uh, and I believe we were on the wrong side of that. And then there's this Nevada race. Yeah. And the reason I go on so much about Nevada is it is the one case where statistically it sure looked like the polls were wrong, right? So no errors in 2012, one error in 2010. And so what I would say is that that is a pretty good track record. And, uh, and so it says to me that there's value in being naive about things and not being clever about house effects and so on. Well, that, I, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things that people are doing, but that doing something simple works remarkably well. Well, if, if there's value in naivete, then then I personally must carry a, a great deal of value just <laughs> throughout throughout most aspects <laughs> of my life. I, w- I wanted to ask as well, we, we moved off of fairly quickly because uh, you, you gave me an answer opposite to what I thought you were going to give. I, th- I thought you were going to tell me how fascinated you were with Kansas, and I'm sure you are, but but you also you know, mentioned uh, you know the other states, Kansas, uh, uh, Colorado, Alaska, et cetera. Well, coming back just quickly to Kansas, because you wrote sure, something that I found fascinating, and I, you know, maybe a bunch of other people had thought of it, um, but but I hadn't. So there's this whole question, of course, around, okay, should Orman win, who would he caucus with? And you really, right. um, to, to borrow the word you used earlier in this conversation, you really kind of, I think, kind of unpacked Orman's statement about, you know, uh, um, you know, who he will caucus with. And, and I'm quoting you now here. You wrote um, on his campaign website, he has made two somewhat inconsistent promises to caucus with the party that is clearly in the majority and to end the obstruction of the past few years. If the other Democrats and independents control 49 seats and Republicans control 50 seats, Orman's two claims could no longer coexist. And you give this a 24 percent chance of occurring. And and it's true. I mean, he, he has been saying, well, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to upset the apple cart and, you know, we got to get past all of this bickering. And so, you know, we, we, I'm not going to be the one, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be the one that, that throws the whole thing haywire. But 
there's actually, according to you, a, a 24% chance that he may not be able to avoid that choice. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. Let, let me uh, let me go back a little bit. I, I didn't mean to to give short shrift to a pretty interesting question. So a week before the Democrat, Chad Taylor, dropped out, I wrote in The New Yorker that the single most interesting event, I can't remember how I put it, but I wrote that it would be a extremely interesting in Kansas if the Democrat were to drop out. And I have to say, when I heard a week later that Taylor had dropped out, I, I thought, well, was that me? Probably not. But I, <laughs> but, but I was certainly, uh, and my first reaction is that I thought my friends were, ha- were having their fun with me and, and playing a prank on me. Right. But it turned out that what I'd written about a week before came true. Right. Now, the reason that, so th- there's a couple of things here. The first thing is that Currently, the way their polls are looking, it looks like, like you say, about a 24% chance based on a polls-only look at the election. Uh, so about a one in four chance that Orman's going to have to make that choice. And so that's what it looks like today. The other thing is uh, that my, I was I very specifically said, quoted from his website, clearly in the majority, because if he chose his words as carefully as I think he did, what he means there is that he. I would interpret that as meaning that clearly in the majority means his vote doesn't matter in establishing who's in control. Now, in the case where Democrats and independents have 49 and Republicans have 50, well, that's not so clear because whichever caucus he joins will be the majority caucus. And he says on his site that he's trying to work for the people of Kansas and to get the best outcome for them by being in the majority party. So, if that's his motivation, which is what he says on his site, then if I were to take him at his word, it means that he has discretion in that one case. Yeah, I wonder. I, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna take a look to see if anyone has asked him that question. If they haven't, it's a fascinating question to to ask. Okay, you know that's terrific. And and what would you do um, if if this were to occur? A- anyhow, I hadn't uh, hadn't really thought about that so much. I thought that you. Uh, um, analyze that uh, really, really well. So, uh, just to close things out, Sam. So, what, what's next? What in, is you? You know, think about your model as the Princeton. You know, as the election consortium. Is is you guys go forward? Um, are you just taking in polls every day, and your model is updating kind of real time as new polls come in? What, what's next for you? And and what should watchers of your site uh, kind of be looking for? Well, at election.princeton.edu, I write essays in the center, and I write essays, as you pointed out, from The New Yorker. Uh, Those essays are my words. The calculation is automated and just goes on by itself. Uh, uh, Sometimes we readjust how it's displayed, but the core algorithm of what it calculates stays the same. Uh, The thing I would watch, I think that anyone who's paying attention uh, as an observer or as an activist uh, over on the right sidebar, we calculate the power of your vote, which is converting all this uh, stuff that's happening in the polls, uh, converts it all into the power of individual voters. And so uh, the influence that an individual voter might have in Iowa or Colorado or Arkansas is much greater than the influence of a voter, say, in, oh, uh, let's say, Michigan or, uh, or New Jersey. And so I think that something that's really interesting is to think about which states are pivotal and who's most important in terms of voters. Always something to watch. Election.princeton.edu is the site. Sam Wang is, as you would expect, Associate Professor of Neuroscience and Molecular Biology 
at Princeton University. But he is also, and he is also founder of the Princeton Election Consortium. You can read his work uh, at the site, also uh, at The New Yorker. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. I am Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.